Um, but it's been a wonderful journey. And uh, this morning, as you can see, we're going to be in chapter 5, what might be a familiar section of Ephesians for many of us because it seems to me like every time somebody talks about family, especially marriage, uh, they go to Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. I want to offer this word as well. Um, I think sometimes when we study passages like this, we might wrongly assume that it's just for those who are married or those, just for those who are at a certain phase of life. I believe that everything that we're going to study together this morning is applicable to everybody here, uh, that we all need to think about what it means to be a disciple. And I think at the very heart of this, and it's interesting, uh, Jonathan, the way the college class has been studying the theme of walking, uh, walking in obedience, walking in the light, uh, that's been a major theme in Ephesians as well, really starting in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And so throughout this letter, we've seen really a shift from what God has done for us, especially in Christ, to what we ought to do in response to God's grateful, grateful blessings and goodness, uh, starting in Ephesians 4. And so if you go back up to about verse 21, you see that in the midst of all of this, we're called to... Uh, be subject to one another in Christ, in the fear of Christ, that rather than being selfish and defined by what we want and what we think's best, we look out for one another and care for one another. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think it's easy for us to maybe uh, take advantage of people that we know the best, um, to want to love and want to support and to submit and show care for one another. Uh, but sometimes I think it might be the case that we find it easier to do that when we meet a stranger than in our own families, uh, among those that we know and love the most. And so as Paul's thinking about what it means to follow Christ and be subservient to his will, he's going to walk through several relationships, starting with the marital relationship in Ephesians 5.22. Then in Ephesians 6.1, he'll talk to children and parents. Uh, and then after that, he will, in verse 5 of Ephesians 6, talk to slaves and their masters. And this is sometimes referred to as a household code, uh, as an ethical imperative, as a way of uh, encouraging these Christians, regardless of what their families might look like, to show love and show Christ-like behavior even in their own households. And there are a number of places in the New Testament where we see this kind of instruction but the closest parallel to what we're reading in Ephesians 5 is in Colossians, Colossians 3.18 and following. Colossians in many ways parallels Ephesians. Ephesians talks more about the church and if Colossians focuses more on Christ. But of course, we're not surprised in the way that these two letters complement one another. Uh, they're inspired by the same spirit, written by the same man. And uh, we get this instruction, which is very practical, very real, um, and there's a pattern, and no surprise there, that as Paul addresses these uh, families, as he addresses these relationships, he always starts with the one being called to be subject to uh, by offering instruction, a command, and then after that, tying it to the character of Christ. Uh, I think that's one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked is when we talk about this, we focus on the instruction or the commands, and we try to separate that from the example of Christ. And notice that in every one of these, uh, Christ is central to the instruction. He models this behavior. 
He demonstrates what it means to have power and value and relevance. He's the Son of God. And so if we falsely assume that being in subjection to means that we're somehow less valuable or we're somehow uh, not as important, that's clearly not what Paul's saying. And he points to Jesus as the example of that, the one who models uh, what it means to be in subjection to or subservient to. And so uh, that's the pattern that we're going to see throughout Ephesians 5. Now, just to take a side glance over at Colossians for a minute, I just wanted to show that uh, Ephesians, what's said about couples in particular, marriage, is much fuller than what's said in Colossians 3. Uh, There, you can see that there are similar things being said, uh, namely the two commands to wives, uh, wives be subject to your husbands, and then husbands love your wives. That's really the places where we find the closest parallels, but notice that there are some subtle differences. In Ephesians 5, uh, you see this instruction about verse 22, where wives are told to be subject to their husbands as to the Lord. Uh, Colossians 3.18 sounds very similar to that, as is fitting in the Lord, as is appropriate in the Lord. But then notice that as Ephesians unpacks this more, that the instruction to husbands We're very familiar with Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Paul's going to describe what giving himself up for the church led to. And uh, what we see here is that this is not a passage that's about oppression or abuse. Uh, This is a passage that models Christian behavior, even in the most intimate of human relationships. But I think Uh, It's ironic, at least, that when fathers are given instruction in Ephesians 6, uh, that they're told in verse 4 not to provoke their children to anger. And I think what's implied there is sometimes in these relationships, we can be abusive. We can be uh, ungrateful. We can lead in ways that are not God-honoring, and that causes those who are being led to feel resentment and frustration. And that's true for children with regard to their parents. Uh, Some of us are raising teenagers. Pray for us. Ephesians 6, 4. Uh, But that's also true in the marital relationship. And it's interesting that when Paul talks to husbands in Colossians 3, 19, he doesn't say anything about Christ's love for the church. There he says, do not be embittered against them. Well, what's that about? I think he's saying this can put serious stress on a relationship even when we try to model godly behavior. Uh, I have not read about a perfect family in all the Bible. The first family wasn't perfect. Jesus' family wasn't perfect. We know he has four brothers, Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 3, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. They don't believe in Jesus before the resurrection, according to John 7, 5. They do after the resurrection, Acts 1, 14. And there's all kinds of problems there. Uh, There's problems in Samuel's family and Noah's family. There are problems in Paul's family. Even though I don't believe he was ever married necessarily, uh, we know uh, his parents didn't necessarily practice the same faith. We know about his nephew who spoils the assassination plot in the book of Acts. And so although the Bible models what a family ought to look like in principle, um, we just don't see that worked out in perfection, which I think ought to give us some comfort and hope. I mean, unless you are the model of a perfect family, then congratulations. I'm just going to be real and say that my family is not a model of what perfection looks like. But 
that's okay. If we're striving to live like Jesus and we're trying to respect one another and demonstrate Christ-like compassion and leadership in our marriages and in our families and in our extended family and in our church family, whatever applies here, well, then I think that's the kind of behavior we're being called or, or challenged to demonstrate. So let's get more specific. Uh, I don't think Paul addresses families in, in Ephesians because of the context of Ephesus. And let me explain what I mean by that. There's a tendency or a temptation, I think, to read stuff like this and to say, well, they must have had a problem in Ephesus. I'm sure they did have problems in Ephesus, but I think those problems are probably a lot like our problems. Uh, there's tension in relationships. And sometimes people will uh, say, well, maybe, you know, Paul talks a lot about sexual sin in these letters, especially in Ephesians. And we know in ancient Ephesus, they worshipped Aphrodite, they worshipped Dionysius, and the way that paganism would worship these false deities often involved alcohol and illicit sexual activity. That was a very popular religion. It still is, even if people aren't uh, claiming to worship a pagan deity. And so there's this temptation to, to make everything that's being said in this letter occasional. But I think it's universal. It's tied to human behavior. It's tied to the same lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life problem that humanity has had from the very beginning, uh, since Genesis 3. And so I think the reason this is being talked about is because, one, we sometimes struggle in our families. All of us do. Two, uh, what better place is there for us to demonstrate Christ-like behavior than in the home? in the way we treat those who are closest to us, in the way that we treat those who sometimes disagree with us, and frankly, even in the way we treat people who sometimes dislike us. Uh, this is a week that uh, is hard for a lot of people. Um, I think it's a great time of year. I like to eat and I like football. That's a win-win. But I think it's a difficult time of year because uh, of memories that are sometimes great but we miss those that we wish could be present with us at the table uh, because of memories that are not great. And when you get together with family that you haven't seen since last Christmas or Thanksgiving, sometimes that can cause stress. You know, don't bring up so-and-so around Uncle fill-in-the-blank because you know what he's going to do. I mean, that's uh, a reality. And so it was a reality in Paul's world. It's a reality in our world. Uh, and I, there's a way of reading this that I think wants to sort of put people in a pecking order and while there are uh, differences in our roles in the family, uh, all of this is connected back to our value in Christ. Uh, whether you're a male or female, whether you are a child or the parent, whether you're the slave or the master, you have an intrinsic value that is tied in your being made in the image of God and purchased by the blood of Christ. And no one can take that away. Even if humanity abuses us and we're mistreated and our own family forsakes us, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 10, 34. Don't think that I came to bring peace but a sword. Sometimes families are divided because of faith, because of inappropriate activity. That's a reality of life. How do we respond when those kinds of things happen? I think that's part of what we're talking about here. And so while there were problems in Ephesus involving families that were splitting up and sexual uh, sin, uh, those are problems now. And I think there's something universal about what's said here about family. Who designed the family? 
I don't remember there being really a marriage ceremony in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. It just seems to me that God made Eve. He brought her to woman, made her from man, his rib. And he says uh, that she was made as a helper or companion to him, Genesis 2, 18. Then in verse 24, they're instructed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth, which is a verse that actually gets quoted in our passage this morning in Ephesians 5, verse 31. And so what's being said here? Regardless of our role, regardless of our place in the home, regardless of our place in the body, we have a place. And the way that we conduct ourselves and speak to one another and respect each other, uh, the way that I treat my wife or my children, uh, the way that I treat those I work for or who work for me, um, those things really matter. And uh, I think that's a relevant God-inspired message, whether we're living in ancient Ephesus or modern-day Henderson. There's, a, there's an application there. So let's look at the text. It would be a shame to spend all this time talking about context and not read the text. And just notice, as we look at this, that there's some instruction given to wives, starting in Ephesians uh, 5, verse 22. Then, about verse 25, we begin seeing instruction given to husbands. And we're going to note that all of this is tied to the character of Christ. All of this is tied to the church. Just count the number of times the church is mentioned in this section. Uh, There's actually, in verse 24, instruction specifically for the church. And then, down around verse 33, these principles are reinforced as husbands and wives are reminded of our conduct and how that conduct needs to be tied to the nature of God in Christ. So let's read this together, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So let's walk through this, and that's the way we'll divide this up. What's said to wives? What's said to the church? What's said to husbands? What's the point? And again, I don't think this is tied to whether we're married or not, whether we have children or not, uh, how old we are. I think it's really about what our conduct needs to look like in Christ, how discipleship touches every relationship we're a part of. So if you have a translation like the New American Standard that I was just reading out of, you might notice that in verse 22, uh, the, the verb be subject to or submit is not actually in that verse. It's supplied based on the verb being used in verse 21. So I think it's important to note that what's being said here to wives is tied back to Ephesians 5, 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so there's a connection that I think, again, reminds us that what's being said here is tied to a Christian context. Uh, it's pertaining to marriage in particular. I personally don't think this has any bearings on whether or not I have a, a female dean or boss or president. Those are topics for another day. This is being tied to the marital context. This is being tied to family context. And what's being said? Well, we have different responsibilities. Uh, a close parallel here that's often made is that the language that's used to describe the relationship of the father and the son, they're equal yet different, is often applied to males and females. And when Paul talks about, it's interesting, that when the Lord or Paul talk about marriage or when they talk about the roles of men and women in the body of Christ or in the home, they always go back to creation. Remember what Jesus does in Matthew 19, 1 through 9, Mark 10, 1 through 12, Matthew 5, 32, Luke 16, 18. When he talks about marriage, he goes back to the beginning. He goes back to, in the beginning, God made them male and female, and he recalls the instruction that Paul quotes here in Ephesians 5. That's what Paul does later in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, where he actually talks about the order of creation and the order of sin, and he uses both of those to talk about the way we conduct ourselves in the body. And notice that um, the model that's being used here for wives and husbands is the model of Christ. Boy, that's hard to improve on, isn't it? I mean, what's said in Ephesians 5.21 is that this is a subservience or submission that is represented most perfectly in Christ. And, and I think it's also significant, and this is actually unpacked more in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 12 than it is here in Ephesians 5, this principle of headship. Um, what, what are we talking about when we talk about headship? We're not talking about the source of woman being the man. You can go back to Genesis and look at that and see that she's called woman, she's taken from man, she's brought to man. There's a lot there in Genesis 2 and 3 that I think establishes much of what Paul's talking about here in the family context. But this isn't about source language. It's really about authority, the principle of authority. And Jesus models this. Although Paul says in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, he did not consider it robbery when he humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even death by means of the cross. Jesus models what it looks like when someone has the right to be held as an equal, when someone is valued just as much by God uh, as the other person in this relationship, and yet says, because this is what God wants, because this is the way Christ lives, I'm going to make the choice to submit my will to your will, not blindly, but there is language here that we'll unpack more, especially in verse 24. What does it mean when Paul says, in everything? Well, that's been taken a lot of different ways through the years. Some have said, well, what that means is I only have to do this if my husband is God-honoring in his actions or behavior. Uh, I don't see that disclaimer here. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, we actually see Peter instructing Christian wives who are married to non-Christian men to try to still live out in, in word, but also without a word, by their modest apparel and by their behavior, 
to try to still demonstrate what Sarah demonstrated when she called Abraham her Lord. That's a difficult teaching and a difficult passage. And I know that people want to look at this passage and run to the very end and say, well, what about in this extreme circumstance? I don't think Paul's calling on us to uh, be abused. I don't think he's calling on us to be enslaved. But what he is saying is part of the way we demonstrate subservience and faithfulness to the Lord is striving to be like Jesus even when it's difficult, even when circumstances are, are challenging. And so as he continues to sort of model this, I think that's why very quickly Paul says, well, let's see how this lives, is lived out in the church. Uh, this is the way the church responds to Jesus. Now, I, I was studying this passage with a sister in Christ, not here, several years ago, and she said, well, my husband's not Jesus. And okay, neither is Christie's. I understand that. But uh, I think what's being said is, here is one way that we show our discipleship. Um, it's interesting that that phrase, in everything, is actually used in a similar way to describe the way children respond to their parents. And I don't think Paul's calling on marriages to be a parent-child relationship. Uh, that's not the instruction here. But it is the instruction that while we, this is not about abuse, this is not about oppression, that we have an opportunity to show the world something that has been true from the very beginning, tied to creation, it's something that models Christ-like behavior even when it's not expected. And I think Satan, since Genesis 3, has made this so much about competition with one another. Uh, he's made this so much about me and my way. Uh, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. That's a lie. You know, we're all from God. And we were designed to complement one another and work together. And so I think part of the difficulty in Ephesians 5 is we read this through the filter that Satan wants us to read this through. We think about extreme circumstances rather than the model of Christ and the love of the church. And we also read this in a defensive way sometimes because maybe we only read what's said to wives and we don't read what's said to husbands. And I think that there's almost a reciprocal way of expressing this. And I want to be careful to capture what Paul says and what he doesn't say. But I think he's saying in some, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does that look like? That's incredible. That is a, that's almost an impossible command to live out. First uh, Peter 3, 7 says to husbands, you know, respect your wives because if you mistreat her or abuse her, it impacts your prayers. That's a serious, I mean, there's, there's a lot of teeth in what's being said here to husbands as well. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not a call to caveman behavior, right? That's not a call to selfishness, my way or the highway. That's a call to sacrificial love and support that loves and supports even when it's not fun even when it's not convenient, right? But on the other hand, you get this instruction, wives, be subject to your husbands as the church is to Christ. What does that look like? And so again, we want to form these barriers based on what the world says or based on what Satan wants us to think. And the whole while, Paul says, hey, clear all that stuff out. Look at Jesus. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved us. That, 
that changes the way I talk to my spouse, right? That changes, I'm not, this isn't a marriage class, and there are people who are far more qualified to talk about that than I am. But uh, I think this is is instruction that impacts our marriages because um, this means that even when I'm not going to keep score, and even when it feels like I'm running on E, and I've done everything I can possibly do, uh, I don't quit. I don't take my ball and go home. It's, it's not really about me. Are there exceptions to that? Of course. But the rule is, I am going to love her like Christ loved me. And she is going to love me. I'm not the Savior, and that's not what Paul's saying. But she's going to love me like the church loves Christ. And when you think about it in that way, it just doesn't sound to me like, hey, let's keep score. That's the, and I'm sorry, there are like 15 counselors here, so help me. But uh, the his needs, her needs thing that Christy and I were trained on years ago felt to me like, and I know that's not the intent, but it felt to me like, hey, here's the five things she really cares about, and here are the five things you really care about, and as long as you do these five things and she does these five things, Life's good. That just doesn't feel like Ephesians 5. Because it might be that I'm doing 15 things and my spouse is doing one thing and he doesn't even get that right. And I know that there are situations that make this difficult to talk about, but in principle, isn't that what's being said? It's not about keeping score. It's not about, uh, you know, I've made all these deposits in the love bank. I hate that language, by the way, but that's the language of the book, right? I've made all these deposits in the love bank, and you're just making withdrawals. And I'm in the black, and you're in the red. And I mean, that. so husbands, unceasing selfless love. And notice the language of Ephesians 5. Why did Christ give himself up? We want to talk about the cross, and we should, but what's the result of that? Notice how she's blessed. That's the goal. I'm going to heap coals of fire. We just like using that, right? I'm going to kill them with kindness. I'm not sure that's the motivation here. The motivation is I want her to be closer to God. I want her to be presented with beauty. I want her to be honored and upheld and to know that my number one desire is for her to know the Lord. And I'm going to do whatever I can do to help that and not hinder that. I, I want, that's the result. And I'm not Christ and I can't do for my wife what he's done for me. But the model is, this is about her. This is about someone else. This is about uh, not only my family being blessed, but the world seeing that and saying, man, that guy's goofy and he messes up a lot and he he. He certainly gets it wrong here and here and here, but at least in the way he tries to love his family and in the way he tries to show Christ to his wife and to his children and to the people that he associates with in his neighborhood or at at work or wherever, I see Jesus. I mean, that's the the ethical uh, model here. I see Jesus. Do I see Jesus perfectly? Certainly not. But uh, Christ is... His love is the model and grounds for what this looks like. How many, let's keep this broad so we don't feel like anybody's, I'm not picking on anybody, 
picking on me. That's who I'm picking on. But how many church splits could be avoided by that spirit? Right? Not all of them. But how many times do brethren no longer walk together and it's because we maybe assume the worst and we don't actually have a conversation with that person or those people? Or we have... uh, a Burger King view of, I've got to mention fast food in every Bible class, uh, a Burger King view of what discipleship looks like. It's my way or the highway. If I'm not happy, I'm out. Right? Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And that's a weird thing because I know there's always somebody that says, well, I know somebody that doesn't care about their body. Okay. But what Paul says is most people do. Most people care about their own bodies. And Christ certainly cares about his body. What a great theme, right? Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 here in Ephesians 5. But notice that that same language is used in the uh, greatest command. Uh, Leviticus 19, 18. What's Leviticus 19, 18 say? That's the commandment that Jesus talks about first, isn't it? You shall love your neighbor. What's the second commandment? As yourself, what does that mean? Do you love yourself? That's kind of an odd question to ask, but if I know that something's going to hurt me, I don't need to partake of that, even though I have a history of doing some of that anyway. What about Matthew 7, 12? What's Matthew 7, 12 say? This is uh, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a similar uh, instruction that's very much tied to the same language that's used here In Ephesians 5, when Jesus addresses the crowd and he says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Golden rule. So isn't there a connection? Um, This is reciprocal. There's an association here. You take care of yourself. Well, you became one flesh when you were wed, and um, you need to take care of that wife Husbands, in the same way that Christ has taken care of you and in the same way that you take care of yourself. Now, uh, again, can I live up to that? No, not perfectly. But I certainly have been given a commission and an order that looks different than the way that I think a lot of people view marriage. Um, I mean, how personal do we want to get with this? I think we could all say that there are times where we're pretty selfish. I I think Mark gave me this phrase, I'm a selfish buzzard sometimes. I act like a selfish buzzard sometimes. And Christy has incredible patience and loves me anyway. Uh, Not perfectly, but I don't love her perfectly. But we serve a perfect Savior, and we're a part of the body, and we're joined to one another. And I love the inclusive language that's used here in verse 30, the shortest verse that we're looking at today, but maybe the most powerful. We are members of his body. Just husbands? Sorry, ladies. No, all of us. We are members of his body. We share a direct connection to Christ. You don't need me in order to approach the Father in prayer. You don't need me in order to be made right with him through justification by grace through faith. You don't need me to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that applies in marriage. We need one another, but ultimately, we are all directly connected to Christ. 
if we're equally yoked, which is a different Bible class, but we're directly connected to Christ, and because of that, our relationship is different. It's transformed. So then Paul quotes Scripture in verse 31, Genesis 2, 24, be, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, why does he quote this here? Well, actually, that's not the part of the verse he quotes. Uh, this is the leave, cleave, and weave passage, right? A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Wow. Uh, why is he talking about unity? Because I think he's using marriage as a way of illustrating this mystery. And there's a lot of speculation as to why Paul uses the word mystery here. But I think, ultimately, he's using the most intimate human relationship two people can share, uh, husband and wife, to model a level of fellowship and connection and association that is just hard to put our minds around that the sovereign God of heaven and earth who made us and sustained us and revealed his will to us has brought us near to him and given us the name of Christ and we are one, we're one body. And that unity changes the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we approach one another and we're motivated by love rather than hate. So I, I need to wrap this up. Um, the last verse, Paul shows incredible respect for the institution of marriage. I think that needs to be highlighted where we're living in a time which really isn't different than most times before us where it's human nature to be selfish and to uh, just live with folks and act like we're married. You know, it's human nature to be selfish and date folks and act like we're married. And uh, Paul says, almost like the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 4, the marriage bed is holy and undefiled. There's something about the marital relationship that is very much God-honoring if you make the choice to marry and it's very much tied to what it means to be in Christ. And so fear or respect at the very end of this, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, the wife must see to it that she fears her husband. I think fear is actually a better translation than respect here. But notice that this language is connected back to the, uh, verse 21. It's almost a way of bracketing off this part of Ephesians 5 where in verse 21, we're all told to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What does that mean? Oh, I'm afraid of my Savior. Well, there's a certain, I guess, level to which we could speak of godly fear and judgment. But I think this is more about a reverence towards, a love towards, a, a valuing of that relationship. And so again, the message here as we uh, make some applications is... Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I've got some work to do on that. That's, I don't think I'm ever going to arrive there. But God help us to try harder, right? Um, and, and wives, love your husbands in the same way that the church loves Christ. That, uh, that changes the way I feel when um, I'm looking at the scoreboard. First of all, I'm going to always be behind on that scoreboard. That's one reason I don't like to look at it. But secondly, in Christ, I will never be able to fully show my love and appreciation for God's grace and goodness. But that serves as a way of walking forward with an attitude and perspective that says, may God be first even when no one else is watching, right? May God be first even when there's only one other person involved in the conversation. 
Uh, a selfless love is better than a selfish life. And I know that not every conflict is brought about by the same set of circumstances. And I'm not saying this about anybody else but me. But it's hard for me to think of a time in my life where I've been involved in serious conflict where there hasn't been some level in me of selfishness. Uh, that's a me problem. And maybe it's a problem some others can relate to. But may God help us to demonstrate, even in those relationships, that the rest of the world only sees a part of it, but uh, it's a way of honoring God. Next Sunday, we're going to think about the way this looks in the church. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 9, Lord willing. Appreciate you all. And... Uh, Glad that we're a part of the same family in Christ.